Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In certain ways, demographics in politics is destiny and has had a huge impact on our politics and particularly presidential elections. There isn't a greater student of that than Ron Brownstein, uh, the longtime veteran political writer. He's now the uh, director of editorial content for Atlantic Media, uh, but uh, one of the really incisive commentators on American politics. He came by the Institute of Politics uh, the other day to talk about this election. And while he was here, we sat down uh, and talked about not just that, but his, his long career in, in uh, political journalism. Ron Brownstein, you're a, you're an interesting character because um, you are sort of half journalist, half scholar, and uh, you can travel in circles that other journalists don't necessarily travel. But you didn't start. You mm. you come from a family that's yeah. not a family of scholars, no, and no. You, but but a working class family. Yeah. Tell me tell me about yeah. I grew up in, I your, grew up in Bayside, Queens. Uh, my dad was an electrician. My mom was mostly home, and then was a uh, a receptionist for a doctor. She got the job when someone in my sixth grade um, swung a can at my head and cut my ear in half. And while I was getting my ear sewn up, my mother got hired by the doctor. Um, I hope she and, thanked you. Yeah, she you took you know, one for the yeah, team. There. I went to public schools in Queens and uh, State University of New York. And uh, you know, it's funny when I was in high school. Originally, I thought I was going to be. Where did you go to high school? Benjamin Cardoza in Queens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I wanted to be. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I thought I was going to be, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I was. You study English literature. I studied right? English literature, and even in high school, I was writing stories. Stories like fiction and, you know, submitting them to, you know, 17 or Cosmo <laughs> or whatever. Uh, but there was a journalism professor who was like, hey, why don't you, you know, you write pretty well. Why don't you uh, go to work on the paper, a school paper? And I really liked that. And then when I got to college, I went to work on the paper What right did away. you like about it? You know, I liked the immediacy of it. And it also felt more, uh, it felt more connected. I think writing fiction just felt very lonely because there's something you were doing totally on your own. Uh, and journalism is this interesting hybrid of, you know, you're out in the world and then you're back trying to process it, right? right. I mean, you know yourself. Yeah. And, but, it, but it constantly refreshes you by being out in the world, I mean, by talking to people. And I felt like a novelist. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I never got far enough to know whether I would have been a novelist. <laughs> but uh, that was like you were lifting it all yourself. Mm-hmm. And in journalism, you had a lot of help because you had interesting characters or interesting events they provide, you know, sort of like a. Well, if you're a novelist, you have to sort of live within your head. You have to live within your head, and, yeah. and journalism, you get to go out and be part of it. It's sort of like the difference of like fungoing a ball 300 feet or hitting a fastball that's coming in 100 miles. You're getting some help from the. You're getting right. some. You're getting some momentum from the other side. So I found that really. I found that really compelling. And once I got to college, I never looked back. I had no. I never for a moment thought I would do anything else. Same. It's a. It, it is. The, I've had this discussion with others here. Um, about the storytelling nature. I mean, in, in, a, in a sense, so people in politics are all in some form or fashion involved in storytelling, yeah. and certainly journalism is storytelling. So it's not a big leap from one. No, to and the, it's also the, the the front row seat at history is real, and it isn't always the, having a seat on Air Force One. I like the the one Im, the one image in my mind uh, above all. For some reason, I, it struck me so much. It was the 1994 campaign, the Republican landslide. I was in Tennessee writing about the twin races uh, where Fred Thompson uh, got elected, and I think Frist got elected. And I think it was for Frist. I went to a clogging festival 
in late October. They're not the clogging dancing somewhere outside of Nashville. The trees were beautiful. The day was beautiful. And I was thinking, there is no way in hell I would ever be here if not for this job. I would not see this part of America. And, you know, that was true, you know, every day, you know, in, uh, especially in the old days, I hate to say it, when you got more time to do stuff. Well, I mean, I, this is another discussion I've had, which is the changing nature of, uh, of journalism and political reporting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I often wonder if we would have uh, picked up on the Trump phenomenon more quickly had reporters been out doing what, you know, the people who I grew up watching yes. in journalism did, which is essentially getting cars, the David Broders of the yes. world, got in cars and drove around And states. knocked on doors. I mean, David Broder was knocking on doors after he was David Broder in right. capital letters. I mean, literally, uh, you know, and it, it, was, it was very different. I mean, I think, you know, uh, we are providing more information than ever before, but not necessarily more understanding. And, and, and you know, the, just the velocity that is now required in the economic models for everybody. And I think what's really, what's really admirable is that um, uh, the great newspapers, at least, the New York Times, the Washington Post, have tried to separate that pressure from allowing people, at least on the print side, to produce you know, spend time in a community and really like the incredible story you probably read in the Washington Post of the woman, the Trump supporter in small town Pennsylvania and all the conspiracy theories she believed. I mean, that was incredible. And, and the good news is that stuff does well on the internet. I mean, once you, once you finish yes. it, it also, it has a dual life. It does well. It's, it's brilliant in print. It's, it's a uh, powerful internet. And it's certainly what David Farenthold has done this year on the Trump investigative reporter for the Post Washington Post. Shown that there's still a, you know, a tremendous, and I believe the, the video was the most concurrently viewed newspaper, possibly video, the, the Donald Trump video that they posted was the most concurrently viewed newspaper story ever. Um, thus, uh, thus uh, confirming the, uh, Truism that sex is always, yes, always, always it never hurts. It never hurts. But, but I, I but you know, one thing about the Times and the Post, uh, and they they both devote a lot of resources yeah. to this, as you point out. But the the Post is has the benefit of a sort of oligarchical yes. uh, owner uh, ownership, so they're, they're he's plowing money. Bezos plowing right. money into that. Times is you know, from yep. all accounts, struggling. And yep. one of the concerns is that uh, well, they'll, they'll ultimately, they'll be hurt by the, the challenge is the lack of that kind of funding. The challenge is that with the exception of the big epical scoop, uh, the internet doesn't really reward reporting. It rewards kind of attitude and take and snark and uh, perspective uh, at, at the you know at the positive end. It's perspective mm-hmm. and take at the uncharitable end. It's kind of snark and and voice. But in any case, it, re- it rewards voice more than it rewards reporting, except at the extreme end. I mean, if you have a big revelation, a lot of people will read it online. But kind of the bread and butter of the internet is not the reported story that mattered uh, to the LA Times when I was uh, starting out there of going to a place for three or four days. I mean, my favorite political story I ever wrote, uh, were, I guess there are two. One was a uh, two-story in 2000 about the ground war in Michigan between the NRA and the AFL over the allegiance of blue-collar voters. Uh, and, you know, I spent a week. I was with Charlton Heston one day in a hockey rink. And then the next day I was with Teamsters on the, uh, on the parking lot of a bakery. And it was just, you know, it was pretty clear the management did not want them there and would not dare say so. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it was just very... Yeah. You We're know, here. You got you know, a problem with that? You got a problem with that, right. Yeah. And, you know, and then I wrote a piece in 93, I guess, the fall of 93, about the mayoral race, the rematch between Giuliani and David Dinkins in New York. And I was in New York for like 10 days and wrote what I still think is the finest thing I've ever written, a kind of a sitting on the edge of a nervous breakdown kind of piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know... So how would that is that possible now in the economic models of how journalism work? Could somebody, you know, send me for ten days? Right. You know, yeah. I mean, in the Atlantic Magazine, we do that all the time. But you know, there's only four stories in the magazine yes. relative to all the stuff we produce online, and everybody else produces online at Vox and BuzzFeed, and so it's a, it's I think it's a challenging, uh, you know. Plus, and the other thing is that there's so much that nothing stands out. Like. Could David Broder or R.W. Apple exist in this? Would they exist in this climate? Is there anyone that people really look to as a, wow, that, you know, that matters? Well, that's true in all our media. I mean, you know, there's no Walter Cronkite right. anymore. There are no 
There are no iconic figures really in American journalism. And there, you know, there are good things about that. The whole the idea of democratizing of the discussion and information, but. The cacophony is real, and there really isn't much ability to separate what matters from what's not. And there is this circular effect of just things emerging somewhere, going into social media, going onto cable, print, you know. And, and the reality is that um, for, all, for all of that velocity, for all of that activity, there, the underlying stability of something like this election is real. I mean, there's yeah. kind of a disconnect between the conversation and the consequences, yeah, I well, I want to I want to get into that, and I want to return to your story as well. Uh, the one point I would make about this cacophony is that um, people seek um, they seek refuges, and often uh, they seek refuges that affirm rather than inform, uh, and uh, so you get alternative kind of versions of reality, which I think fuels some of the. A hard edge that we see in our politics right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have felt for a number of years that, um, just contrary to what it believes, the Fox, the Fox News Channel is an asset for Democrats. For example, because Fox basically tells the Republican base every day, "You are a majority, and power is being stolen from you by by varying methods. You know, either Obama bamboozled the country, or Democrats are, uh, you know, voter fraud." Uh, and it basically says you don't have to change anything. You know, you are the majority. It's just being stolen from you. When the evidence, I think, is very different. You yeah, know? I think and, I always felt. I always felt, by the way, that that you know, I, uh, I, I, I came across Roger Ailes years ago when he was a media consultant, and I was a campaign manager, mm-hmm. and I was doing a, a race here, Paul Simon against Chuck, Chuck Percy for the U.S. Senate in Illinois. He was the camp. The media consultant, and, and you know, obviously, I followed him because he was an iconic figure in media yeah. consultant before. He he does have a this network that he created reflected his own personality. Mm-hmm. He came out of Ohio mm-hmm. in the '60s, yeah. kind of a John Birch sort of orientation, and um, he created a network that reflected him and spoke to people uh, like him in those terms. And I think one, you're, you're, it's an interesting cut that it helps. Democrats, because I think what's happened is you've got this radicalized Republican base that yeah. feels as it's being stolen from them. Right. That they're being yeah. told that they are the majority. You know, it's a center right country. All of these kind of truisms, and that somehow the only reason you're not in power is because the public is being deceived, or Democrats are importing a new electorate, or they're voter fraud. You know, and in fact, there are kind of underlying demographic, cultural, and economic changes that have provided a lasting advantage to Democrats at the presidential level, if not at the congressional level, uh, that the party has to adjust to sooner or later. Their party. The the, the Republican Party has to adjust to. And Fox and much of the other conservative media, Rush Limbaugh, are out there telling them the opposite. They don't have to change anything. In fact, they can double down. Um, and it'll be, it's going to be the same fight that they had after 2012 when Mitt Romney won a higher share of white voters than Ronald Reagan did in 1980 and lost by 5 million votes. And the initial impulse was, hey, we got to change. And then it became right. no. It's, and in it's, fact, it's, it's doubled almost, down. With it's Trump. striking to read the autopsy of the Republican Party after the 2012 election and how fundamentally it's been shredded. Uh, by the Trump candidacy, which has basically done the, everything the exact opposite, opposite from opposite. What, what was recommended. They recommended reaching out to minorities, particularly Hispanics, women, and young people. And those are the, the reason why, if he loses, he's going to lose, or yes. the, the major reason. But let me, before we get into yeah. all of that, I just want to finish your story because did, yeah. you, your interest in politics, did that begin? When you were a kid, or no, when did, no. how did Actually, that evolve? Yeah, that was interesting. I was working at the National Journal magazine in the early 1980s, which was a weekly uh, magazine in D.C., nonpartisan, that really focused, you know, intently on governing. Right, that's what it was. And I used to say its uh, its logo should be more. Than but you your, didn't you do a stint with Nader? Yeah, some? right. Right out of college, I wrote a couple books. Um, but that those were also very policy oriented. How did you come to that? How did you end up hooking up the, with him? Uh, a friend of mine, really, you know, like the way with the life works. I went to SUNY, State University of New York, yeah. Binghamton. And there was a uh, the person who ran the PERG, 
in New York, the public interest research groups are these state organizations. Right. Okay, uh, it's, it's a consumer consumer organization. Mm-hmm. He he went down and became effectively Nader's chief of staff and hired me right out of college to do that. And I essentially I was brought in. There were all of these projects and kind of the aftermath of the Nader's Raiders. Uh, book projects that had been started and never finished. And I was basically hired to either finish them myself or to hire other people and edit them. So at 21, I was, you know, supervising a staff and editing books and, and we right got out of college, right out of college. And we got a lot of them finished. And I wrote a couple, uh, uh, co-authored a couple. One was, uh, Reagan's ruling class, which profiled the top hundred people in the Reagan administration. And when I finished that, that, that almost killed me. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a big project at 22. Um, fascinating, though, to like interview Paul Nitze and you know mm-hmm. Richard Pearl and all of these figures. That's why I love the Americans. I feel like I'm watching my uh, my youth, uh, <laughs> you know, come kind of come back to life. Casper Weinberger, we interviewed um, uh, William Casey, you know, and it was it was really something. And then I went to work for National Journal. Originally, they put me on kind of a regulatory beat. Before we leave, yeah. did you work closely with Nader? Yeah, yeah. What was I, your impression of him? So uh, he was, you know, he was he was very much as, as he is now, kind of a, you know a person with just intense commitment and blinders. I mean, he kind of he kind of you know, uh, if you if you wanted to know everything that happened in two thousand, you should uh, go back and find the seventeen paged single space type letter he wrote con- uh, condemning his number one lieutenant ever, Joan Claybrook, when she was running the, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration under Jimmy Carter. Uh, and, um, you know, he just has a very single-minded view and has done a lot of good through that, but, you know, can get can get kind of losing sight of the of the larger of the like he he's 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 always been and he's one of these figures you know there are figures in American history that are there to um, make the deals and there are those who are there to bang on the windows mm-hmm. and he's a window banger he's a window banger but he, who got a lot done I mean you know the auto industry is a you know a different place in terms Ralph of Ralph Nader came on the scene in the sixties yes uh, around the issue of car safety, safety. Uh, yeah. the Corvair yeah. unsafe at any speed wrote the book. And then uh, extended that to really create the idea of kind of an outside check on all the regulatory agencies, the idea that it should not only be the regulated industries that are trying to influence the all the agencies that were created in the 70s, the EPA and uh, mm-hmm. the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and the older ones like the FDA. So trying to create an institutional uh, voice and was really effective at that, um, I think kind of struggled more in kind of extending that tactical issue by issue and kind of a broader political vision that made sense. He will always be linked in, you mentioned 2000, to that election, got 90,000 votes in Florida, Gore lost by 537. And and, and made the argument, which I thought was, you know, and look, I mean, you you know, he correctly said as the third party candidate, it's not your responsibility to worry about who is going to win. But I think I think where he went wrong in that campaign was arguing that Gore and Bush would be interchangeable as president because that was not intellectually honest. I mean, there was no Well, and that- the subsequent events were pretty profound. It's unlikely we would have gone into Iraq if yeah, Gore had won. Yeah. We certainly we, probably wouldn't have squandered, squandered the deficit. Right. It was huge. It was huge. And squandered like, the surplus. Like I, I, I don't I don't blame I don't, I don't think look, if you if you believe that you have a message that you want to take to the country, and the only way to change the parameters of the possible is, in fact, Excuse to me. run uh, and bring that message to the country. I think that's you, – you can't object to that. I mean, because otherwise the third parties would never – you know, otherwise – you know, if you think about the early 60s when Nader emerged, it was a moment of kind of maximum overlap of the parties, right? right. And so – and you had – on the left, you had Michael Harrington, Rachel Carson, Ralph Nader, voices like that saying, this consensus doesn't work. And on the right, you had Barry Goldwater and Phyllis Schlafly, you know, saying this consensus doesn't work. So there's a place for those voices, but in 2000, I thought the part that he got wrong or you know was un- was was misguided was going the next step and saying, "Look, it doesn't matter which one of you, these guys you elect; they're the same." You hear some echoes of that today. This year, you do in the uh... and and certainly it's not true. I mean, you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton represent really different futures for the country. So. Back to your narrative, you were at the National Journal. You yeah. went to the National Journal. Yeah, I went to the National Journal and a great reporter named Mike Wines. Uh, actually, go back a step. There was a great old school front page editor named Dick Frank with the mustache and the recently passed away. 
uh, and he had designed the devised the coverage um, for the 1984 primary, so that he basically divided the country into regions and gave a different reporter each region, and they were responsible for everything that was going on. And Michael Wines was a great reporter, uh, was part of the national journal team that included Michael Gordon, Joel Haverman, Robert Samuelson. It was really an A team. Mm-hmm. Michael Wines got hired away by the New York Times. And at, you know, I was 25 years old. I was covering regulatory agencies and they said, Hey, kid, you know, go to California, write about the California primary. Um, and I went to the Cal- went out to write about the 1984 California primary between Walter Mondale, Gary Hart, and Jesse Jackson. Yeah. I met, I met Mickey Canner, John Emerson, Maxine Waters, and Gray Davis. Uh, Mickey Canner and John Emerson were running the Mondale and Emerson and, and uh, Hart campaigns, respectively, from down the hall at Manat Phelps, the law firm of Chuck Manat, who went on to be the chair DNC of the Democratic. Chair, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they liked my story and they said, you know, write another one and write another one. And by the fall, I was the chief political reporter at, at, uh, uh, for the general election. Um, let me tell you, though. One of my, my responsibility in that election back in the, in, the, uh, in the old days was as a weekly magazine, I had to write the story that was ready to go into print if Mondale won. Okay, so you know, talk about talk about the Maytag repairman, right? I mean, no, I yeah, I wrote I, 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 I wrote six thousand words. <laughs> I still remember the lead. Uh, you know, from now on, it will be Walter Mondale and that Harry Truman, who, that underdog site as their patron saint. Yeah, I I, I I can empathize with that because I was a political reporter at the Chicago Tribune then, and I got to write, you know, profiles of. Uh, people like Ruben Askew, who, when he was running for president, the mm-hmm. f- former governor of Florida, uh, and uh, in, in the previous election, uh, Phil Crane, when he was running for president, a, a lot of them not terribly relevant stories. I covered uh, uh, John Anderson's uh, mm. running mate, Pat Lucy, you remember, oh, yeah. the former governor, governor of Wisconsin, Wisconsin, for vice president. There wasn't a huge market for the third-party vice presidential coverage, like but that's Askew, what young reporters yeah, that's have what we to do. do. I feel like Askew would have been one of those candidates who would have had, an ex- would have had a banner with an exclamation point, you know, yeah. Askew, you yeah. know, like Jeb and Lamar. Um, yeah. yeah, so I did that, and then I, you know, I did that for a few years, and then in 1986, it was it was a real kind of turning point for me because um, I've been in, I've been a national journal for a few years. I had job offers from the New York Times and the LA Times at that point, and I had only been in Washington, you know, seven years out of school. And I felt like if I didn't get out, I would never get out. I would just kind of stay and just see that, which is fine. But I wanted to do something else. So I moved to California. And um, I wrote a book. I spent the first three years I was there mostly writing a book, which was a history of the relationship between Hollywood and politics. Yeah. Going Interesting. Back the, going back to the 1920s uh, called The Power and the Glitter. And while I was doing that to kind of make ends meet, because shockingly, I did not get a six-figure, much less a seven-figure advance, I – you know, uh, I wrote a lot for the LA Times. I wrote for the magazine. I wrote for the Sunday Opinion section. And so when I finished the book, uh, the great Shelby Coffey, who's now the head of the museum uh, and was the editor of the LA in Times, Washington, yeah. Yeah, hired me as a national political reporter based in LA. I covered the 92 campaign from California, a lot of miles, uh, and then moved back to Washington, where I spent the next 21 years, uh, most of them with the LA Times, but switching over to the Atlantic in 2007. I want to take a a quick break uh, for a message from our sponsor, and then I want to talk about Hollywood in Washington. We're back with Ron Brownstein. Um, So you wrote this book in the 80s. Um, That relationship has has become even more intense. There's like this romance between uh, you go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and it's a bevy of 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 Hollywood and you know you go to and and people in Washington are you know enthralled by those yes. celebrities and, and it seems I always felt like there was a kinship between Hollywood and Washington you know both you know celebrity cities very high on yes. themselves right uh, val- valued uh, celebrity uh, but tell me about the sort of the, the, the synergy between Washington and, and Hollywood. So I feel like having written this book, uh, it was great. Because I, when I wrote it, I wrote it in the late 80s. I was you know in my uh, late 20s. And uh, at that point, it was, it was early enough that there were still people alive from the Blacklist era, from the 30s, from the Popular Front era. I mean, I interviewed some of the Hollywood 10. Uh, mm-hmm. I interviewed people who writers knew, who were blacklisted. blacklisted. I interviewed people who knew Melvin Douglas and were friends with Groucho Marx. And it was, first of all, an incredible introduction to L.A., you know, driving around, whether it was the people who had retired to success, like Philip Dunn, the great screenwriter who was living in this beautiful house on the beach in Malibu, or the ex-communist screenwriter John Bright, who was nearly blind, living in a 
tiny hovel apartment in Hollywood with newspapers piled up, you know, like kind of pack rat hoarder. And it was just and Evelyn Keyes, who was married at one point to John Huston and played Scarlett O'Hara's younger sister. Uh, and that was the title of her memoir. Uh, so it was a great introduction. And to me, like the turning point was what really changed was in as television moved into politics and politics inexorably developed more of a, entertainment or the ability to communicate at least became a more important role. Hollywood really changed its view, which is that uh, in the first decades of Hollywood's involvement, they kind of saw themselves as bit players who were there to provide maybe a flash of glamour. The idea of a Hollywood star having an opinion that they felt necessary to share with the world was very limited. Orson Welles did. I mean, Orson Welles thought he, you know, Orson Welles wrote a column. He debated Tom Dewey once for Franklin Roosevelt. He wanted to run for Senate. But Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall never really thought that the world cared what they thought about, uh, you know, uh, Adlai Stevenson. Yeah, I mean, they wanted they wanted Adlai Stevenson to be president. They were especially Lauren Bacall. They were madly for Adlai, but they didn't think they. She had was a, apparently yeah, madly. She for was. Adley, right? She was absolutely. Yeah. They loved yeah. him. Uh, I talked to her, um, but they didn't like. They were less likely in those days to kind of feel like they had to share their views. I think what happened in the '60s, the combination of the uh, erosion of faith in all institutions. I mean, we we forget pre-'60s how much deference there was to kind of you know the the experts, the people who were running the country, but also the the rise of television. Suddenly in the '60s, you had people like Paul Newman saying, "Well, why why is a politician any more inherently legitimate?" have a legitimate point of view than I do, you know, um, and they would go out and campaign against the war or kind of express their view. And I think that was the turning point. And really, since the 60s, stars have become much more assertive about kind of putting forward their own views. Um, probably the most politically successful celebrity of all time is Bono, uh, I think, uh, you know, and George Clooney is similar. Um, what's interesting, I, I kind of see a third generation First generation were the people who stood on stage and waved mostly or entertained. You know, mostly that's what they thought they were there to do. Um, the second generation were kind of the activists within the political system, like Paul Newman and Warren Beatty uh, and Robert Redford and, um, you know, many, many mores in, into the 70s and 80s. And the third generation are uh, people who kind of moved to direct action. So I think if, you're, if you think about Bono or George Clooney or Matt Damon or Angelina Jolie or many of the one politically, most politically active celebrities today, they're less likely to be in a campaign than setting up their own nonprofit, you know, right. do something in the world. Obviously, a lot of people still campaign. I mean, there's no shortage of that. But that, that was something that probably would not have occurred to the people 40 years ago, although eventually they got there too. I mean, Newman and Redford have created important institutions uh, as well. So I, it, it, there is definitely an evolution, and I, it's certainly here to stay, because in any society, the ability to attract attention is a form of power. It just is. I mean, right? In any democracy, especially, if you can get people to look at you, they are more likely to hear, you know, hear what you're saying. And, and it the, doesn't take much to attract attention. No. Today, in right. the era of the Kardashians. It does and- not. And one other thing about the celebrities is, and I'm interested in your thought about this, is you know, talking to people in the 80s and 70s and 80s, they were seen as a way to expand the bandwidth. I mean, uh, there were only so many people who watch the evening news and who read the New York Times yeah. or even though, who consume normal channels of political news. If you have a celebrity talking about your candidate or your cause, suddenly you're in Us Magazine. You're more likely to be in the beauty parlor. Than you were. Right. Are you more likely to be on, you know, Entertainment Tonight or Access well, Hollywood? I, I can tell you that um, what we discovered when I was uh, doing uh, President Obama's campaigns uh, was that the marginal voter wasn't watching the yeah. evening news, and the people who were watching the evening news generally knew who they were for. They weren't. Good. You weren't going to sway them particularly because they were highly informed voters, and they chose to be uh, watching the news. And so, one of the things that one of the revelations that came from the sort of analytics work that we did was that the marginal voters in uh, in and there weren't that many of them uh, were people who were going to vote but weren't paying attention to the news and so we, we you know we bought sixty four cable networks and while mm-hmm. you know the Romney campaign was buying the news yeah. we were buying you know uh, reruns of Andy of Mayberry at three in the morning which seemed insane except the data suggested that that's where we were going to find uh, marginal voters. A friend of mine who worked on the Romney campaign uh, said that uh, if uh, they lost Ohio, which of course they did, he was going to blame it on Judge Judy. He called it the Judge yeah. Judy election. All yeah. the Obama ads on Judge Judy aimed basically at blue-collar right. white women, especially stay-at-home moms, 
Uh, and, you know, yeah, so you have to go out. And I think celebrities kind of give you the, a, little, a little ability to go outside the normal channels because they get covered by different uh, outlets, yeah. uh, both in print and on television. And, you know, they, you, you, again, it, it, I mean, Mark Melman, who's a Democratic pollster, said to me in 2004, I think he was polling for Kerry, that the, the, the paradox, the frustrating paradox of presidential campaigns is the people with the most power are often those with the least information and who are, the hard, and are also the hardest to reach. Yeah, yeah. Although uh, because of the balkanization of media now, you can really uh, target your your media in a way that's very concentrated and your communications is that way, the, is that the judge judy strategy that's the judge judy yeah. strategy right there you you've got it um you uh, you became a specialist on demography mm-hmm. you're a you're a you are an apostle of demography in politics uh, i mean nobody speaks more eloquently and in more depth about it than you. Why? How did you become interested in that? I think it was living in California, especially around the early 1990s and Prop 187. I had moved back to D.C. by Prop 187, but still covered it. The anti-immigrant. Um, the anti the, the Paul, the Paul uh, uh, Pete Wilson uh, ballot initiative he sponsored in, in 1994 to cut off all public services, including public education, to uh, uh, undocumented immigrants. And you know, the story of California from the mid-80s to the mid-late 90s was essentially, I think, what we are living through nationally here. And you had a, you had a white majority that had always basically decided things in the state, right? I mean, who, uh, who the, the winner of the vote among whites was usually the governor. Uh, and you saw that power crumbling underneath as the, uh, you know, voters of color became increasing. Asian Americans, Hispanics, African Americans became a bigger share of the overall electorate, and there were these. There was this huge political conflict, and you know, in ballot initiatives in the 1990s alone, California. At one point, they passed Proposition 187, banning services. They passed another proposition uh, banning bilingual education. And then they passed uh, Proposition 68, uh, banning um, 208, uh, banning uh, affirmative action, right? So there was this, this kind of huge, you know, direct collision. And I think that's what really got me focused on this and thinking about this. And by the late 90s, the combination of – if you look at the Gray Davis, Dan Lundgren, 1998 governor's race in California, the model of the modern democratic coalition is apparent because essentially you have uh, the diverse communities plus a big portion of the white-collar, college-educated white communities on one side – a lot of blue collar working class whites and then non-urban, you know, once I used to say that Republicans start winning in California as soon as you can't smell the ocean um, as you go inland. And that alignment kind of fascinated me, you know, and I think that by then I could kind of see in prototype where we were headed or maybe I didn't see it fully then, but it, you know, it kind of struck me as something important and I've kind of stuck with it, you know, ever since. And, um, it, it, you know, my main uh, critique of political journalism is that we act as if the world was started anew, not only each campaign, but almost each day. And in fact, the va- you know, most of the stuff, I mean, there are exceptions, obviously, but a lot of the stuff that we write about, we tremendously overrate the impact of. And that even a campaign is tumultuous. Isn't that, in certain, Ron, yeah. isn't that in certain, certain ways a function of the competitive nature of modern uh, media and cable I, television and, and the need to make uh, every to to uh, kind of overemphasize the importance of breaking events yeah. in order to draw viewers. I think I think all of that has made it worse, but it's always been there. I mean, look, the first three words and first three letters in news are new, mm-hmm. and you know, un, you know, it's not great for the news business, but unfortunately, in politics, often the most important thing is watching the paint dry. And even a campaign as tumultuous as this is operating within very clear constructs that have that go back for a very long time. And why don't you talk about that? What what do you think those constructs are? Well, look, I think that you know the the fundamental uh, the fundamental dividing line in our politics has moved from class to culture. Uh, That uh, we had a class based political system from Franklin Roosevelt through somewhere 
in the 1970s, probably certainly the 60s. I'll, I'll say 1968. We had a class-based political system from Franklin Roosevelt through 1968, where essentially the Democratic Party was the party of working-class white America, plus what was then a pretty small African-American population, at least at the, at the you know for most of that period. Uh, and the Republican Party was the party of white-collar, uh, more affluent America. That was our politics. Um, every Democratic nominee from Adley uh, Stevenson in 1950 through through Carter in 76 ran better among whites without a college education than whites with a college education. They're the party of people who work with their hands. And uh, that world began breaking down in the 60s. Uh, and Be, Well, we, we've talked about yeah. this, but it began breaking down around for civil rights, reason, around civil, civil rights, rights. busing, later affirmative action, and then all of the social issues as they kind of piled on, abortion, guns, peace through strength versus diplomacy, uh, welfare, uh, you know, they all push at the same seam. I mean, the phrase, you know, when you were starting out and when I was starting out was wedge issues. It was mm-hmm. Republicans who, who Lee Atwater and his generation of Republican thinkers were constantly looking for issues that would drive a wedge between working class white America and the Democratic Party. And they found no shortage of them. They found lots of them. Uh, you know, many of the racially tinged issues aimed at the blue collar ethnic populations in the North, crime, welfare, uh, and then more of the social issues aimed at the evangelical blue-collar populations in the South. They succeeded in doing that. That's what allowed Republicans to dominate the um, period from 68 to 88 when they won the popular vote five out of six, average 420 electoral college votes. Um, but you know, as the population evolved and the partisan allegiance evolved, uh, Democrats began to become more competitive for two reasons. One is that the minority population grew. Uh, we went from 13% of the vote being non-white when Bill Clinton was first elected to 28% when Barack Obama was reelected. And as I, you know, as we've often talked about, it's one thing to give up 80% for Republicans to give up 80% of the minority vote when they're 10 or 12% of the electorate. It's another thing to give up 80% when they're pushing 30% yeah. of the electorate. And then the second thing that happened was that all of the same wedge social issues that were driving blue-collar whites away from the Democrats and toward the Republicans, once Bill Clinton eased the fears of white-collar whites about the Democrats on the economy, that he wasn't going to be a crazy big spender, that he was going to demand personal responsibility, uh, it allowed their uh, more liberal social views to kind of come forward, and Democrats began improving among college whites. And we had what I've called the class inversion, where now Democrats consistently run better among every election since 2000. They've run better among college-educated whites than non-college whites, reversing the pattern that existed at least from the 50s to the 80s and probably from the 30s on. Where does the, where is, where is the economy fit in here? Uh, we've gone through... Uh, not just demogra- uh, uh, massive democratic, uh, demographic changes, but also economic changes. I think the, the, the well, you know, the, it is... I mean, know, this is the, very, the very sort of base that you're talking about, the sort of Trump yes. base, uh, uh, some of the Bernie Sanders base, yes. are non-college educated voters... Who are losing ground economically. Exactly. And who feel both economically and culturally marginalized and have grown more radicalized in their view that the political system is failing them. And I think that... Certainly, when I first started covering politics, I don't think there was any way that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump between them could have won 25 million votes. People would not, not that many people. In the primaries. In the primaries. Not that many people would have considered them plausible presidents uh, at that point. But I think they have had, they they have, have developed such a sense that the conventional political leadership has failed them, that they're more open to possibilities that they would not have considered before. And look, I mean, the there's no question that there is kind of a convergence, I think, of economic frustration and demographic anxiety that has created the opportunity for Trump. But in terms of the alignment between the parties, you know, the Democrats uh, ha- do have a, you know, they do have a white working class piece, but it's much smaller than it used to be. Half of Bill Clinton's votes in 90, 1992 came from whites without a college education, according to the exit poll. By 2012, whites without a college education provided only a quarter of the total votes that Obama won. And the difference was filled by college-educated, white-collar whites, drawn to the party more on social issues probably than on economic issues. They tend to be, at least the men, small government. The women are more open to activist government. And then the growing minority population. So, you know, where we are now is we we emerge from the Obama, two Obama elections with these kind of I like to call separate but equal coalitions, a Republican coalition that is older, preponderantly white, still 90% of the Republican primary voters are white, 
heavily non-urban, non-urban, outside of urban centers, and religious, and a democratic coalition that is that is the opposite, right? That is uh, younger, more diverse, more white-collar, more urbanized, more secular. Interesting stat, David. Today, only one-third of self-identified Democrats are white Christians. One-third are non-Christians, uh, and one-third are non-white Christians, right? Republicans... Uh, about almost 80% of Republicans are still white Christians. You know, in the last time, 80% of the overall society was white Christians? 1984, when mm-hmm. Reagan got reelected. So I, I, you know, the way I've described it is we have a coalition of transformation, Democratic coalition that is fundamentally comfortable with a changing America, and a coalition of restoration in which Republicans are drawing their biggest vote margins among voters who are the most uneasy about many of the changes that are happening, whether it's bigger immigrant populations, press seven for Spanish, Gay couples holding hands on the street. These are the voters who are most uneasy with all that. And what and percentage Trump, of the entire electorate do you think that represents? Uh, I would say that's about the, the you know, the coalition. The, the evidence is the coalition of, of transformation is bigger at, at the national level. It just is. I mean, that is, that is how Democrats have won the popular vote in five of the past I mean, six. The reason I ask you this is, and you know, I've talked often about this, is that Donald Trump has commanded this uh, yeah. non-college educated white electorate. It, it propelled him to the nomination. And, and yeah, non-urban, yeah. It propelled him to the nomination. The question is, can, it, can you get elected president uh, with that base if you can't reach into minority voters, if, you can't, uh, if you're underperforming among college educated whites? I think the answer is no. I think the answer is clearly no. And it was no even before the last few weeks. And to some extent, one of the problems Republicans are going to have is that the message of this campaign, if Trump loses, is going to be somewhat confused and obscured by the cascade of personal problems that have, you know, beset him, Uh, whether it was that bad performance in the first debate, the tax revelation, and certainly the Access Hollywood video. I think the underlying agenda, the the message of the, the real important message here is that Trump, to me, is the embodiment of the missing white voters theory. You know, the, this argument that this was the, this was the argument that Trump the, trumped the autopsy after 2012. Initially, as you said, Republicans did the autopsy. They said, hey, we've got to reach out to a changing America. Mitt Romney won a higher share of the white vote than Ronald Reagan did in 1980. He lost by 5 million votes. We've got to talk to more people. And instead, that, you know, because so many in the party did not want to go down the road, policy road, that that analysis entailed, they kind of grabbed onto another theory, which said the problem was, no, 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 the problem is that we don't get enough minority or millennial or socially liberal whites. It's that we do not turn out enough of our culturally conservative base, whether this it's This was actually collar, Ted Cruz's argument. Right, Ted Cruz's argument, blue-collar, evangelical, non-urban. Trump is the end of that assembly line. But the big message of Trump is that there is no secret earpiece. You can't... If you run on an agenda and message that is provocative and polarizing enough to truly energize this culturally conservative... And there are millions of white non-voters who respond to a message like that. The problem is, is that for each one of them you gain, you not only risk losing minority voters, which was the obvious problem that everybody saw a year ago, but what has become abundantly clear as the campaign has gone on, that you have equal risk of alienating college-educated white voters who hear that as bigotry and or uh, economic kind of ostrich head in the sand on the protectionist side. So Trump is running extremely well among blue-collar whites, even amid all of his troubles. But the question is whether for each one of those votes he gains, does he lose a vote among college-educated whites? He's now at risk of being the first Republican ever in the history of polling going back to 1952 to lose most college-educated whites. And you'd have to say today that's almost certainly going to happen. So, you know, I think the, the message of this is that um, it kind of goes, takes you back to the autopsy, which is that Republicans have to find a way to talk to a changing America. You can't, as Trump has done, in essence, run against it and, and say, you know, I, like I, you know, we talked about this, I, I think the key word in the Trump lexicon is again, because yes, it implies right. there was a point earlier in American history that was better for people like you. I think, you know, if you're a 32-year-old Hispanic uh, lawyer or a 27-year-old African-American architect or a 40-year-old white professional woman or a gay couple in Charlotte, North Carolina, you may not think things are perfect now, but there is no mythical again you are trying to get back to. Life was not better 50 years ago for people like you. So... The, I think the message is going to be that, that, it, that you cannot win on that agenda. 
Um, and the, you know, the, the paradox is you have two candidates, you know, the only thing, the only reason it, it has been the closest, the race is the closest that it gets when Clinton comes down. She's got lots of problems. People are, you mm-hmm. know, lots of hesitations about her. But I think the evidence is pretty clear. There's a ceiling in the low 40s for the Trump persona and message. We're going to take another break and we'll be back with Ron Brownstein. You outline the, the, the problem or the self-limiting element of the, the Trump candidacy and uh, argue that the, the Republican Party needs to broaden its base in order to win. But the question is, um, can you win the Republican nomination uh, advocating that? And I mean, it seems like there's a civil war that needs to yes. be resolved within the Republican Party for them to become a national party in the sense that they can win presidential yes, races. Right. I, I think there are two questions. I mean, let's come, let me just say the second one real quick, which is that the Democrats have the, have the um, kind of inverse question, which is that it's pretty clear that the current Republican coalition cannot win the White House in normal times without finding ways to talk to more people. It is just simply not a majority of the country. But it's also true that- Which is only going to become more complicated. It's, it's every, every four years, it goes further in that direction. Um, the, the eligible voter pool is two points more non-white every four years. I mean, that's just, just the way it is. Millennials in this election for the first time will equal baby boomers as a share of eligible voters. Probably not of actual voters, but by 2020, they're going to be the biggest group in the electorate. So- I think at the presidential level, it's very clear they have to find a way to talk to more people. The problem Democrats have is that their coalition is not very well suited to winning the House in particular because it is it is a very urbanized coalition. Obama won a higher percentage of his total vote from his 100 best counties than any winner in at least the past 100 years. I mean, he won the 100 biggest counties in America by 12 million combined votes. He lost the other 3,000 by 7 million. And where that plays out on the House is that even before you get to redistricting, as you move outside of the urban areas, Democrats simply can't compete because in those places, you, there is no workaround. You have to win more blue-collar white voters than they are capable of winning right now. So the Democrats have their own problem here. But to go to your question— It does speak to the stasis— Of, of yeah, the stalemate. That, that we stalemate. have. That we have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you have, a, you, have, you have a Democratic majority at the presidential level that cannot implement its agenda consistently because it can't win the House— consistently because of the way it's distributed. I mean, that's really what we have. and Exacerbated by the redistricting. Exacerbated, but, but it would probably exist even yeah. without it, uh, I think. But yes, definitely exacerbated by it. I mean, if Hillary Clinton wins the popular vote, uh, Democrats will have won the popular vote in six out of seven elections going back to 92. That's never happened in American history since the formation of the modern party system in 1828. No party's ever done it that fast. No party's ever won popular vote six times in only seven elections. I mean, so, you know, you get hit by the two by four enough, you know, certainly sooner or later, it's got to catch your attention. To answer your question, I don't believe it was foreordained that Trump was guaranteed to win. I mean, Trump uh, consolidated the, the nomination. Blue, the nomination. Mm-hmm. He consolidated the blue collar side of the party tremendously. In a 17 person field, in the combined exit poll, he won 47% of all blue non-college Republicans. That's an incredible performance. He is connected viscerally with that segment of the electorate and society. But even in the Republican primary, he only won 35% of college-educated voters. Uh, if you look at the results in Northern Virginia, basically tells you everything you need to know during the primary, excuse me, the results in Northern Virginia during the primary where he was plastered by Marco Rubio, by Marco Rubio you pretty much see what you're seeing in the general election where Heartbreak Hill for him is Northern Virginia and Oakland County, Michigan, and the suburbs of Philadelphia and the suburbs of Denver. So what happened was that no one consolidated that white-collar side of the party the way Romney did in 12, the way McCain did in 08. And until the New York primary kind of broke everything open, Trump was having trouble in the primaries getting above the low 40s, the same problem he's had in the general election, getting above the low 40s. So I don't think it's impossible for someone to win with a more center-right, economically focused, less um, a xenophobic nativist message, but they have to be big enough to bring all of that together. Well, and it, it also depends on who's on the other side. You know, Mitt Romney won in 2012 in part because he had a super PAC that yeah. plowed all his opponents yeah. under. Uh, uh, Jeb Bush had more money than anyone in this race, didn't and it, it didn't mean anything because 
Donald Trump was such a dominant personality. He was. And he also, look, Santor, Rick Santorum in 2012, who lost to Romney, ran on a very similar agenda to Trump without quite as much racial animus, right? It wasn't, it didn't have that hard edge of their criminals, their rapists, mm-hmm. but it was reducing immigration and erecting trade barriers. That was kind of, it was kind of that blue collar populism. In fact, Santorum, I think to this day, believes that Trump cribbed from him. And and uh, and his uh, and his book, uh, but Trump was vastly bigger, vastly you know he was vastly he went further. I mean, Pat Buchanan seems euphemistic and from yeah. yeah next to next to Donald Trump, uh, and so he went further. He touched those buttons more directly. He had more media attention, and also, frankly, that side of the party has gotten bigger. I mean, that's the reality. And we usually see part of the problem Republicans will have in twenty twenty will be if these college Republican leaning whites vote Democratic this time. Do they go back into the Republican primary in 2020? Or is the Republican primary more blue collar, more evangelical, more non-urban, more uh, less to work with for a candidate like a Romney who wants to uh, build a coalition that includes Oakland County, Michigan? You um, you covered the 1992 uh, campaign. You covered Bill Clinton. And as you point out, he redefined the Democratic Party in a way that uh, allowed the party to get out of mm-hmm. the ditch that it was in uh, by making it more acceptable to a broader uh, group of voters. Um, talk about the Clinton campaign of 2016 and Hillary Clinton's issue emphasis, policy yeah. emphasis versus Bill right. Clinton in 1992. Nothing better reflects the changing Democratic Party than the difference between Clinton 92 and Clinton 16. I mean, Bill Clinton in 1992, uh, it is unfair to say he was only tactical, that it was all, quote, triangulation, a phrase that was really applied to 96. What Bill Clinton was trying to do was reconfigure the Democratic agenda in a way that would allow them to advance their traditional goals in ways that would allow that, that would permit them to actually win power to do it. I mean, he, he tried to figure out new ways of thinking about issues that would bring back, in his famous formulation, you know, too many of our voters no longer trust us to spend their money, defend their interests, or reflect their values. What he said in the 1991 Cleveland uh, Democratic Leadership Council speech, picketed by Jesse Jackson, um, and and there were versions of that in his uh, in his um, uh, big speeches in the '92 campaign. So. Clinton, though, was operating in a world in which college, non-college whites were still a majority of all the voters in 1992, and non-white voters were uh, 13% of the electorate. And he felt, and also coming out of Arkansas, right, where he was kind of marinated in mm-hmm. that environment, he was constantly looking for ways to bridge what Democrats wanted to do with what those voters would accept. And I think the, you know, the paradigmatic, the two examples were... Uh, you know, balanced budget activism that he, he, he tried to be, he, he, he wanted the federal government to be activist, but he also felt that he would have more room politically to do that if he did it within the context of balancing the budget. And of course, above all was welfare reform and the idea of opportunity and responsibility. Democrats wanted to invest more money in training and education for welfare recipients, which Republicans act, uh, had successfully attacked for years as essentially a giveaway. And Clinton totally reframed the whole issue by saying, we're going to invest more in opportunity. We're going to invest more in education and training and childcare, but we're going to require you to work. And that, you know, the polling on welfare reform in the '90s was 90 percent support, and you know, it was about bridging what Democrats wanted to do with a electorate that would allow them to do it. You know, yeah. creating an electorate. Now, crime you, was another issue. Crime was the same one, right? Yeah. It was. It was. You know, we forget. You know, they're getting hammered now for super predators. But they were getting hammered then for midnight basketball and gun control mm-hmm. from the other side. Um, and I covered that. And, you know, leaving aside the separate issue that um, all of the African American, almost all the African American mayors in the country at that point were big advocates of the crime because they wanted more police. They needed more police. I mean, the urban revival of the past 20 years that has millennials on messenger bikes, messenger bags, in bike lanes in every city in America would not have been possible without the reduction of crime that we've seen in the last 20 years. I'm not saying the crime bill was the only or principal cause of that, but it was there part of that. There are 100,000 more police was, as part of that community yeah, policing. And right, so exactly. So, but if you fast forward to today, you know, essentially the movement of blue-collar whites out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party and the replacement on the Democratic side by socially liberal college whites, millennials, 
and more minority voters explains both primaries this year. The Republican Party has become more populist as those blue-collar whites have become a bigger share of them. That helps explain Trump. And the Democratic Party has become more consistently liberal, like across the board, especially on social issues, but even on economic issues. And that explains not only the rise of Sanders, but why Hillary Clinton's agenda is so unequivocally to the left of Bill Clinton's agenda, especially on social issues. And I think President Obama is a really important moment here because I think that uh, Obama realigned, especially on social issues, all social issues, realigned the Democratic agenda with the priorities of their actual current coalition, this coalition of transformation, as I like to call it. I remember thinking that he was going to be the last Democratic president who didn't support gay marriage. I didn't know he would also be the first one who did. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he kind of got he kind of got a twofer there. Um, and now it is unequivocally a socially liberal party. It's also a more liberal populist party on economics. Um, and Hillary Clinton reflects that. The difference between her agenda and his agenda is the difference between a Democratic coalition meeting, Bill, Bill Clinton yeah. is the difference between a Democratic coalition that relied heavily on the votes of really right of center white people and one that is much less dependent on those voters. The price of that is, again, that is what's making it part of what's making it harder to compete outside of urban areas. And it's making it harder to compete in interior culturally conservative states in the Senate. You, uh, as we sit here, uh, Donald Trump is uh, cratering in the polls. And probably uh, tweeting as we sit here. Yes. yes. Cratering in, in anticipation of what we say. Cratering in the polls. Um, with margins in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, 11 points in the Our four away. Our Atlantic is 11 points too. Yeah. So that may, that may be an exaggeration, yes. but what are, what, what do you see the implications of that for the control of the, particularly the Senate and the margin in the House of Representatives? Look, I mean, the, you know, we, Congress has become a more parliamentary, parliamentary institution. We have the highest levels of party line voting, uh, that we've had in the history of the republic. Uh, uh, and it's a quasi-parliamentary system. Voters have responded, I think, by voting in the same way. They vote less. They have been voting less about the individual and more about the party. I like to say the name on the back of the jersey doesn't matter as much as the color on the front of the jersey. The general trend is toward less split-ticket voting, more party-line voting. Uh, and if that holds... Republicans will lose control of the House, I'm sorry, the Senate, if uh, Trump loses by anywhere near as much as it now appears. Now, I think most people in both parties agree that because Trump is such an unusual candidate and also because Hillary Clinton made a very consequential decision not to try to link him and bind him to the Republican Party, but to say he's something different. Yeah, for her own purposes. For her own so purposes. So she could win some So she could win some Republicans that I think most people expect party line, uh, I'm sorry, split ticket voting to go back up you know, after really four decades of steady decline, uh, most people expect it to go back up. The question is, does is does it go back up enough to survive a loss of six, seven, eight points? If it gets up that high, I don't, I don't think so, I, honestly. And the House will be narrower, but but, but, it, but still in Republican hands. Still, but the caucus in the House, because the most likely Republicans to lose are suburban moderates. suburban moderates, will be more uh, reactionary than the, the caucus uh, well, we have. Now, what are the implications of that for, for a Speaker Ryan? Well, the long-term trend, right, is that, you know, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, there were lots of members of Congress from divided constituencies. Uh, there were Republicans from the coasts and states that often voted Democratic in the presidential election. There were Democrats from rural districts and the southern districts that voted Republican in presidential election. I think those are the natural bridge builders in Congress. I don't think they're necessarily better people. I think it's in their own self-interest to tamp down partisan conflict. And I think the clearest implication of this election, just, as, just like 2012 was, I mean, it's probably going to be further in the same direction, maybe very few people from split districts in the end. And uh, what that does is widen the distance between the electoral incentives are very different. And how many Republicans are going to be representing districts that voted for Hillary Clinton? I think it's an interesting question. It could be vanishingly few in the House. And so they're going to be like, I don't feel any pressure to, to be with her. You right. know? Well, um, and I, I think there's another thing that's at play here, which is that given the incoherency of the Republican coalition, now the only thing that will unify Republicans is anti-Clintonism as anti-Obamaism has unified them in the last And I would go one step further. I think for a big chunk of the Republican coalition, the most important priority is stopping what they see as a Democratic coalition intent on fundamentally changing America. Their, 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 their top priority is negative. It, it is, 
It is they view the Democratic Party as pursuing a set of cultural and demographic changes, for, for example, immigration reform, that is kind of accelerating and institutionalizing this evolution of America away from the way they know it and define it. And what they want the Republican Congress above all to do isn't really to cut taxes uh, or but it's basically to stop what they see as a democratic agenda designed to accelerate the transformation of America into something they don't recognize. And the failure to do that in the last eight years is part of the reason why you have a radicalized Republican And Donald Trump, yeah. Listen, I could talk to you forever, my man, but uh, we should... uh, There are probably baseball games going on that we need to get to. Yes, Yes. this is just a warm-up for for the the playoffs. Yes. It's it's great to be with you always, Ron Brown. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.